Hi, this is Mike, and before we begin the show, a special announcement. You will hear me saying faux gras. That is fake gras. What I meant to say was foie gras. Wait, I'm being told I meant to say foie gras. Foie gras? Frog water. Anyway, the point is I can't speak French. Enjoy. It's Monday, January 30th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the theme of today's show is reforms. I don't normally have a theme, but it turns out I do because my guest is going to talk about anti-Semitism in college admissions. And then my spiel is going to talk about what we're seeing in Memphis and mainly about calls for reform. And my this part of the show up top is going to talk about those parts of the show. So therefore, we have a theme. Now on anti-Semitism in college admissions, you know, it was a problem, absolutely, as documented in the new podcast, Gate Crashers. But now it's just not a problem. It's not a problem for the Jews. Those would be the ones who are most subject to anti-Semitism. Reform happened. This particular form of discrimination stopped. Not saying many people will say, oh, to be a Jew on today's college campus is to be assailed. Others will say, well, in the place of the Jews, step other discriminated against groups. Yes. But generally, this is, I think, of a piece with my understanding of much of America. Change comes slowly, but it happens. We discriminate against one group and then we stop and we get wise and we find other groups to probably discriminate against. Now, sometimes reform happens slowly or not at all, and there are parts, there are little pebbles or breadcrumbs or pellets of grain that they say count as reform, and I don't understand why. I was reading in the New York Times about a bill that passed in New York to ban faux gras. No more force-feeding of these poor geese faux gras. Now, that ban has been halted by the courts, and it didn't really go into effect, and you can still get faux gras in New York. But here is one point of reform that the pro-faux gras forces have cited. The farmers have argued that the force-feeding technique that produces faux gras, called gavage, does not amount to animal cruelty, though they changed the methods they used in 2017 to make the process more humane, switching out the metal tubes they once placed inside ducks' throats with plastic ones. Wow! What, what an advance the ducks are saying thank you, or they would if their throats weren't so badly damaged. But my theory of change is that change is a process, and here in America, functional, more or less functional society, it's always frustrating, but we do eventually get change if the people want it. And also, sometimes the change that we get doesn't turn out to be the best change. Which brings me to the death of Tyree Nichols. I can't stop wondering if my theory of change needs to be questioned a little bit. Because yes, in Memphis, the cops were arrested, pretty quickly arrested, even though initial press releases were misleading. And yes, it seems to be that we're going to now have a necessary conversation. You know what? Screw conversations. Maybe we'll have some momentum and some impetus for actual reforms, as in changes of state or city law. So the main point of the spiel will be about the possibility of that. But here's what I have no answer for. Would all this have happened without the real threat of rioting or rebellion, if you don't want to offend a righteous looter, but without the threat of civic unrest, which I decry when it happens, but I also almost always think is counterproductive, would we have gotten what I think is the just result to an unjust act, which is swift charging of these officers? Normally, city leaders don't want to pick a fight with an entrenched institution like the police. 
except for maybe they do now because they fear for other entrenched institutions like all of their downtown or maybe their own jobs. I don't have a ready answer for that, but I just want you to know I am always thinking and questioning my own theories, even my own pretty firmly held beliefs. So, on the show today, I will deliver that spiel unto thee. But first, Mark Oppenheimer is a senior editor at Tablet Magazine, author of Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting in the Soul of a Neighborhood. He hosts two podcasts with Tablet, Unorthodox, great one, and Gate Crashers, The Hidden History of the Relationship Between Jews and the Ivy League, eight episodes, one per Ivy League school. We speak of gate crashers and how the story of Jewish experience is a tale of defining who colleges are for, as well as what colleges are for. Mark Oppenheimer up next. Gate Crashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. It is hosted and reported by Mark Oppenheimer. And the, the subject is anti-Semitism and quotas at the Ivy League institutions, quotas against Jews. Now, if you're interested in Ivy League institutions or Jews, which is probably a larger percentage of the GIST audience than, say, most general podcast audiences, you might care. But let's say you're like, all right, you know, I'm not going to say I'm not interested. It doesn't hook me. Here's what Gatecrashers does. It makes the case, and I think quite convincingly, that the quotas, that the efforts to keep out the Jews had such reverberations that just about everything we know about the selectivity of selective colleges were born of the efforts to keep the Jews out. Mark Arpenheimer is also one of the hosts of the great Unorthodox Podcasts. Joins me now, Mark. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you. So good to be here. So did you know that part before going in that the whole reason we have to go through this, I'll use the term, you know, the Michigas of, yep. of selectivity and SATs and testing and angst is because of the Jews? Well, first of all, you know, your usage of, of Michigas, I love it when you get Jewy with me, Michael. It's so, it's, it's, <laughs> Getting Jewy it's, with it, yes. it's so exciting. Um, it's, I like it when you get down verbally. Um, the, no, when I went in to report this, uh, eight episode podcast, one episode on each of the Ivy League schools, really for the past century from 1920 to the present, because the quotas were born in 1919, 1920. We are literally a century into the uh, into the effort to keep Jews out of the Ivy League schools. I knew that we would get some good stories. I mean, I had always heard urban legends about, oh, you know, they here's how Yale or Princeton kept the numbers down to 10 percent. And um, and of course, it's relevant today. And I knew it was relevant today because of this lawsuit against Harvard, because if you read the brief, as no doubt everyone has, the plaintiff's brief in the Asian Americans lawsuit against Harvard College and also UNC is in that lawsuit as well. They say on page four or something, the same techniques used to screen out Jews are now being used to screen out Asians, um, ranking them, you know, scoring them down in subjective criteria like charisma or courage or things like that. Um, so I knew there was relevance, but I had no idea to answer your question. I had no idea until I really began researching it deeply that everything about college admissions was born in the 1920s of the effort to keep out Jews. Um, because to put it bluntly, 
even Ivy League schools were not particularly selective in, say, 1900 or 1910. Right. That's large... what I was. That's that was my insight. It wasn't just so much the mechanisms that they would preserve their status as elite institutions or their selectivity. It was actually, they had to make a choice because Jews were wanting to apply and actually presenting themselves as strong candidates. They had to make a choice to actually be selective, which we may not understand when we think about the status of these institutions today. We think of these schools as places that since time immemorial have been, have conceived of themselves as highly selective. They were not. Right. And they, they, and they birthed presidents and they were the oldest school. So why wouldn't they be? Right. Right. It makes perfect sense. And yet what they were, and with some exceptions, they have different histories. Penn and Brown were a little bit different. Cornell was a little bit They all have their own histories. But largely speaking, what they were initially were divinity schools. They were places you went to become a Protestant minister. And for obvious reasons, that was very closely allied with the ruling class in America in the 1700s and 1800s. Then in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they really morphed into being finishing schools. You would send your, your son to Columbia because you were a wealthy New York merchant family and you wanted him to meet a nice girl from Barnard and you wanted them to make a good marriage. So they became finishing schools. So they were not particularly intellectual places. They were not places at the cutting edge of science or the humanities. Um, They were places where you went to row a little bit, do some acapella singing, uh, pal about with some other elite kids, meet people to go to Newport with in the summer and find a good girl to marry. And so there was no particular reason that an ambitious immigrant kid of Jewish or Italian or Irish stock coming out of a good public high school in Boston, New York, wanted to go to Columbia or Harvard in the year 1890. Um, you would either go into a some sort of apprenticeship to become a professional. You would take the Abe Lincoln route into being a lawyer, or you'd start a business. You'd become a merchant. But there was no reason to go, um, you know, drink martinis and sing a cappella at Columbia. Then in the early 1900s, um, these schools became a little bit more rigorous. They, they started getting some very good professors. And in New York City in particular, a lot of the Jewish boys coming out of Bronx Science and Stuyvesant, places like that, these elite public high schools, said, you know what? Instead of going to City College or NYU, I'm going to try to go to Columbia because also Columbia was not particularly expensive. These schools were all much cheaper. So mm-hmm. if you could scrape together a few bucks, you could go to a slightly more socially prestigious place. And so all of a sudden from about 1900 to 1920, Columbia went from being negligibly Jewish to being 30 or 40 percent Jewish almost overnight. And yes, to, to, to your point, they basically had to say, wait a second, we can't keep being an open admission school or there are going to be too many Jews here. So we will be selective. We will artificially restrict the number of people we admit as a pretext for keeping out Jews. And that is where college selectivity was born. Yeah, and and that phrase you just used, they were open admission. They weren't just- Pretty much. Yeah, they weren't just unselective. If you wanted to go, you could go, but who would want to go? It was the rich people who, yeah. The, right. The freshman, the size of the freshman classes varied wildly from year to year because some years 700 people wanted to go and some years 843 people wanted to go. So they were very different kinds of places until the Jews came along. And then they had to conceive of themselves like, OK, what are we doing here? We're not really divinity schools anymore. Um, if we're going to try to preserve our status as elite Protestant schools, we have to start screening out these ambitious immigrant kids who want to come. And so they had to create admissions procedures that were much more kind of rigorous and and, and they were asking for letters of reference and transcripts and interviews and all these things. And, and a lot of it was to figure out who's Jewish and who's not. 
So there is, it is true that uh, there was this, there was the, the impetus to keep out Jews because it would change and uh, the guardians of these colleges saw, uh, saw it as sullying the reputation of the colleges. But it's also true, and your series points this out, that there was something to the the image of the really smart Jewish kid who is going to complete a four-year education in three years and be a grind and just take a, a whole lot of classes to save money and to get into the workplace and not contribute to the atmosphere on campus. And so if we deride the drinking clubs and the rowing and and the whiff and poof, whip, whiff and poos or whatever, yeah, they're worthy of derision. And yet at the same time, there is something about a college that is social. And you do point out that many of the Jews, and we're talking about in the early part of uh, yeah. of this experiment, uh, if you want to call it that, that was antithetical to the what we ideally think of as a residential college. Absolutely. Um, which is, you know, founded on the Oxford and Cambridge model, which were highly social places. Um, Absolutely. If what you want is a school filled, if it's 1920 or 25 or 1930, and you're a trustee of Columbia University, and you want your school to be a place where students come to get gentlemen C's, do a little bit of homework, but also support the football team, uh, play intramural sports, gear up for the senior prom, um, you know, put on musical reviews, uh, do some recreational fencing, and, and, you know, date Barnard girls, having a school that's 40% Jewish, drawing heavily from the ranks of first generation, uh, you know, post-immigration Jewish boys from downtown New York, Lower East Side and Brooklyn is not good for that school you're trying to create because those boys were largely commuter students and they wanted to leave campus after class and go home and do their homework so that they would be able to break into the middle class of America and realize what they saw as the American dream. So absolutely. I mean, there's an aspect of this that is not anti-Semitism in a in the sense in which we think of it today. It's not necessarily that people saw Jews as worse or inferior or malevolently superior, uh, filled with cunning and shrewdness, simply that by and large, the population of Jews they were looking at was not interested in the culture of Columbia as the trustees saw it. And of course, there are numerous exceptions, but these are still the battles we fight today. I mean, there's a reason that Harvard doesn't want its school to become 60 or 70 percent Asian and why this has worked its way up to the Supreme Court. Part of it is, of course, is because they want to leave room for historically underrepresented groups um, to have more of a presence on campus. But it's also because the the image of these schools as places for well-roundedness rather than just intellectual achievement has won out. No school wants to be thought of, right. except, I don't know, University of Chicago, maybe, MIT. No school wants to be thought of as a place where kids come and just do all the homework. They all want to tell you, but also you're in all these, you're in French club and yearbook and all this other dumb stuff. And frankly, you know, I mean, I went to Yale because I was, you know, a mediocre intellect with lots of extracurricular brio. And it's a little embarrassing looking back. I mean, how how little I got out of the world famous teachers and professors I could have really learned from. Yeah. Your podcast made me think about the concepts of meritocracy and whiteness. And both of those came into uh, came under 
interrogation in the podcast and in my mind. But, you know, meritocracy and whiteness are subjects. They're both subtexts and at times texts of the podcast. Do you think, it seems like whiteness, there's a greater embrace and let's really grapple with this. And meritocracy, it seems like there's, uh, these days, there's an allergy to acknowledging it. How do whiteness and meritocracy get implicated by the lesson of the Jews in the Ivy Leagues? Yeah, I mean, one of the things to understand is, of course, in the 1920s, Nobody saw the Jews as white in the way we think of white people as a dominant ruling class. And that's a lesson we should always bear in mind today when a lot of Jews, in especially in sort of left-wing and progressive circles, are perceived to be um, kind of not only white, but sometimes the whitest of the white because it's seen, they're seen as white and rich and privileged. And I think we would all talk about that with a little more sophistication and humility and compassion if we understood how historically new and contingent that perception of Jews is. Um, remember that geographical diversity as a as a virtuous construct was born of the desire to keep Jews out. The reason schools like Columbia and Harvard began sending admission officers to the Mountain West, to Montana and Idaho and Washington State, um, looking for students from all 48 states in the 1920s and 30s was because they figured correctly that students from those states would be Gentiles. Would be, it was a way to keep the number of urban students, which meant Jews, down. And that was in, you know, in the lifetime of some of our parents. Um, So that's really, really important um, to remember. And, you know, in terms of meritocracy, one of the points that I want to make is these schools have never been purely about finding the smartest, however you want to construe merit. They've never been about finding the smartest or the most industrious or the most, quote, deserving. They've always been about constructing a particular image of what the social organism of the campus looks like. Who is knocking up against whom? Who is who is, you know, getting to know whom? So you you want a certain number of Gentiles and then you allow a certain number of Jews and then at a certain point you decide you want it to be half women. And now these schools think of themselves as wanting to be about 10% international, but not more. I mean if you were just saying who are the smartest people we can get and it can be anyone from the whole world, these schools might they, they might be 35% Chinese. We don't know. Right. Um, they might be 20% Singaporean or 15% South Asian. We don't know, but that's not what they want. They want 10% international, not 20%. So they've never been meritocracies in the sense in which they like to think of themselves. I wish there were some American schools that were. What what I came away from producing Gatecrashers uh, thinking was that the lesson of this podcast, Gatecrashers, was that we need more different kinds of schools. It's I think it's fine for there to be some hoity-toity, snooty society schools that are looking to generate, you know, well-rounded people who can, you know, fence and do schoolwork and put on musical reviews. And some of them might be Jews and some Gentiles and who cares. But society should also have places for people who want to go be really serious students without the extracurricular frippery. And I'm concerned that we don't. Yeah. And to bring it to uh, a theme of the podcast, the exclusion, the lawsuits about excluding Asians, it is very similar to what the colleges were doing with the Jews because the uh, current Asian students are not getting in uh, in the numbers that their, uh, for instance, test scores would indicate, that the Asian students are, be, are they, they use vague personality criteria to discriminate against them, but also in this way, and this is what surprised me, that it's not subtle, that if you look at it and you talk about what was revealed in court and how uh, different professors, Asian professors who've looked at this will point out, there are 
ways that the colleges discriminate. I think what we've always heard is, well, there's a way to do it, but they don't, it's really hard to prove. No, you came out, you reported a couple of instances where it's not hard to prove at all. Like they're like colleges just reaching out to a lower threshold of white student in terms of SAT score than Asian student in terms of encouraging them to apply to their college. Mm -hmm. And yes, and when they go to the West, when they go to Idaho, for example, we now know they aren't just looking for Idahoans, they're looking for white Idahoans. In other words, if what you wanted was geographical diversity, you should be happy to get an Asian or a black student from Boise because they grew up in Boise. They have a Western perspective and some, they know what it's like to not be from an elite East coast media center, but actually the admissions office thinks of the kind of Western frontier boy or girl they want as being a white Western frontier boy or girl, not an Asian American student whose parent, you know, is an immigrant PhD who teaches at the university in Boise. That's not what they want. They specifically think of Westerners as white people. And so they don't reach out when they do that admissions outreach, they actually don't reach out to Asian students in those places. So it's it's very bigoted, very discriminatory all the way up and down. And look, there are people who say, well, yeah, that's, that's what we have to do because we don't want these schools to be, um, you know, 50% Asian American. We don't want them to look like UC Berkeley. We want them to look more like America, which is, you know, under 10% uh, East Asian American and a few percent South Asian American and so forth and 12 or 13% black. And they, you know, if that's what they want and therefore they are going to construct every class to look like that, which they do, at least be honest about it. I mean, my feeling about all of this has been all of these things may be defensible. What's indefensible is the dishonesty and, and the dissembling. And universities have tax exempt status and are nonprofit and are granted that because they are seen as places where that promote unfettered truth. That's how they're serving society as, as these, these wellsprings of truth, of truthfulness, not truthiness, but truthfulness. And yet when it comes to admissions processes, they just lie all the time. Yeah. So this isn't about the Jewish question or the Asian question, but do you think based on that, their status, the Ivy League status as the utmost brands in not just education, but basically the focus of attention of middle to upper class uh, American families will ever wane? It's not much, right? There's a kind of hopefulness, especially some of my friends on the right have this hopefulness that, you know, either Peter Thiel will give smart high school seniors a hundred grand to, to, you know, uh, to do a startup or they'll go, you know, join the army or they'll, you know, uh, or, or the university like, of Austin will yeah, become a they'll thing. Go to, yeah. They'll go to university of Austin or some other interesting, weird virtual startup. And by the way, I have a lot of feelings about what a missed opportunity a place like the university of Austin is because we do need some schools, you know, shaking up the ecosystem, but they shouldn't be virtual schools because virtual learning is bad and dumb and depressing. And they shouldn't offer masters in leadership, which is a non-field. I mean, they should be really old school retro places with books and blackboards and places where people get together and sit around cross-legged and talk. And they they shouldn't be futuristic. They should be kind of backward looking, I think, because this they should be done on the cheap and they should be really accessible. And you shouldn't need to kind of crack some weird futuristic Peter Thiel Silicon Valley code for them. Um, what I would love to see, the most realistic, better option is if states really resumed fully funding 
their state schools. So if you look at the University of California in 1950, when it was like $10 per credit hour, and it was basically free, that was one of the greatest engines of social mobility in history. I mean, University of Connecticut, where I live, University of California, University of Arkansas, these state legislatures should figure out how much they need to tax their citizenry to make these schools free. So that if you're a smart high schooler, even if Yale throws a lot of financial aid at you and you can go for 10,000 a year, if you can go to UConn for a dollar a year, a lot of people will. And that would be such a remarkable statement. What is one extraordinary way to transfer wealth and social mobility to have a really European style free good for your education system. And we had one. The state schools were largely free in the post-war era, and they've become increasingly expensive because the schools have said, we need squash courts and fancy dorms and, and the arms race, and we've, we don't want to tax ourselves for them anymore. So that's what we could get back to. Yeah. And the sign of progress won't be that the Asian students who've sued Harvard win. The sign of progress will be that they say, oh, well, who needs Harvard? And remember, in 1910, when, when the story of gatecrashers starts, uh, America was 110 million people. We are now l- exactly three times that size. We're about 330 million. So there should be at least three times as many schools that we see as kind of elite type places. And we have not, our sense, our, our, our capaciousness, our sense of what a great place to get an education is, has not grown as the size of the country has grown. Mark Oppenheimer is the reporter and producer behind the podcasts gate crashers which we've been talking about and unorthodox both are from tablet mark thanks so much thanks mike thanks for having me And now the spiel. The five Memphis police officers who were arrested in the killing of Tyree Nichols have been charged with official misconduct, aggravated kidnapping, official oppression, aggravated assault, and second-degree murder. To think of those officers being charged with murder of a citizen who had no weapon, no recourse, and no chance seems an obvious indictment of, if not the entire system, then major portions therein. But in a way, it's a kind of progress. Because the murder of citizens in police custody doesn't actually seem to be rising at an appreciable pace over the last few years, but the charging of murderers has not been rising commensurate with the commission of the crime, but it has been getting closer. In 2021, 21 police officers in the U.S. were charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting. This is according to Bowling Green State University criminal justice professor and former policeman Philip Stinson. His database is the most authoritative one. It's really the only one of such legal proceedings. And while Stinson says that is a small number, perhaps a statistically insignificant one, depending on what your denominator is, and while he also notes that the rise is a small fraction of what the real number should be, things are improving. 21 charges in 2021, the last year for which there are full figures, 16 in the year before that, 12, 10, 7 in 2017. You see the trend. Now let's look at the number of unarmed black men killed by police. According to the Washington Post, the authoritative database on this, there were in 2021, again, the last year for which there are statistics, seven. Seven unarmed black men were shot and killed by the police. But Tyree Nichols wasn't shot, neither was George Floyd, neither was Eric Garner. True, and there is a separate database maintained by Mapping Police Violence that keeps a data set on everyone killed by police. There were 31 
unarmed black men killed by police, depending on their definition, which includes things like a small baby strapped to the chest of his father who willfully engaged in a shootout with police. But in any case, it is true that 97% of police killings are via firearms. And it's also true that the seven unarmed black men killed by police in 2021 was the lowest that has ever been recorded since the Washington Post began recording. That year, the first year, was 2015, and there were 31 men in that category killed by police. And then the next few years, the number was in the 20s, and it dipped into the low double digits. And last year, the last year for which we have numbers, seven. They're all sad. Some should not have happened. In the case of all seven, there were many, if not all, that should not have resulted in a charge against the officer, however. For instance, a drunk man knocking out one officer with a punch. He jumped on and punched another officer. That cop first tried tasing the man who was punching him. That didn't work. The attacker was then shot and killed. He was unarmed. It's in the database. It's noted as fact. Every one of these incidents is troubling, to say the least. The case of Nichols, heartbreaking. It's why Yamish Alcindor expressed her anguish on NBC's Meet the Press in this fashion. This was such a horrific and terrible video. It is so... It's so problematic that we see these officers tying their shoes, not rendering medical aid. It seems to me that this is ordinary. It is terrible, but it's also very familiar. So to me, as I'm struggling to cover this because I really do see this and think to myself, how many other people have been have been in this situation? I understand everything she's saying, but we should note that the source of hers and so many others' pain seeing these awful images, or as it's often expressed, how frequently do we have to wake up to see another sight of police brutalizing a black man? Actually, this might be hard to hear, but that's a kind of reform too. Well, the very fact that we see it at all and that it troubles us and that we are aroused to say this needs to stop, but that is all a consequence of a reform that body cams are there to monitor the police to present some measure of accountability or at least the spark for the criminal justice system to render accountability that was born of reform there were so many people killed and abused by police in the era before body cams that we never heard about never knew about were never noted outside the impersonal entry into a ledger that doesn't leave the station house Now we can grapple with what's going on, or at least the part of what's going on that we see. Not every jurisdiction has body cams. They somewhat suspiciously, it seems, fail to go on at the most important times. But this is a hard process. No one thought it would be an easy process to enact reforms. No one thought, or if you listen to the predictions beforehand, no one thought that the reforms that were to be enacted would instantly rouse us to enact further reforms to stop this issue Totally. But being confronted with the problem does not argue for giving up on the idea of a solution. Remember, a very plank of the reforms of, say, five to ten years ago brought this problem into our living rooms. There's quite a common sentiment, which I know you've heard, I know you've read, that the talk of reform is just talk. The time for that is over. We need to speak of something like abolishing. Abolishing now is a word that is more preferred than defunding. I've read it in The Guardian. I read read the Jesuit magazine America saying this. The idea is reform doesn't work. It plainly doesn't work. It's hard to look at the Scorpion unit and their attack on a young defenseless motorist and conclude, oh, progress is being made. But in 1972, 
the NYPD discharged firearms 994 times. In 2021, that number was 52. In 1971, the NYPD shot and killed 93 subjects. In 2021, the NYPD shot and killed six. I went through each one. Everyone had a weapon. One had shot an off-duty officer three times. Four others of the shot and killed suspects were actively aiming guns at police. One was chasing a woman with a large knife. Then upon police intervention, ran at them with the knife in hand. The point is none seemed to have been anything but unavoidable tragedies. The word in police parlance is good shootings. I'm not going to say that, but shootings that should not have resulted in an increase in Philip Stinson's database. There should have been no charge against the police officers involved. So it seems crazy if horrific images are fresh in your heads to cite the six police-involved shootings of 2021 in New York as progress, but they are, in a way, looking at history. And the cries for abolition, or the point that reforms are unworkable, are heard loudest now in these times But please remember, these cries are very much in the minority. Every activist who talks about the need to end qualified immunity to take one popular reform, they are in fact embracing reforms. They're rebuking the abolitionist crowd. When Senator Cory Booker re-engages in talks over the George Floyd Policing Act, he's embracing reforms and the idea of reforms and specific reforms. When progressive critics far to the left of other members of the Democratic caucus, I'm talking about someone like Maya Wiley, who ran for mayor and lost, to Eric Adams, a former cop who is much more pro-police. But when you hear Maya Wiley engaging on this issue, talking about laws and rules that need to be enacted, She's implicitly saying, I embrace reform. Here she was questioning the DA of the county that includes Memphis. I'm curious if you think there needs to be some changes to state law, because as we know, in instances, for instance, where police officers have not intervened to stop these constitutional violations uh, or in other ways help to cover them up, whether there's sufficient tools in the toolbox to make sure they're held accountable as well, including, as we've heard, in terms of this one police officer who said he hoped that officers stomp Tyree Nichols. Curious what you would think about your own state laws. And Steve Mulroy did, in fact, say there does need to be rule changes. Wiley is the leader of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. By asking that very question about changes to state law, she is saying, I believe change can occur. And that change can be part of improving policing. Usually, you won't hear a dialogue in these times between police reformers and fellow activists who are in the abolition camp. The police reformers don't want to have that conversation. It's kind of a no-win for them when someone counters with, you talk of reforms, reforms haven't worked, have they? But by proposing new rules and solutions and means of accountability, they are, in fact, answering that question. Right now, it's all we can expect them to do. A fractured coalition is not in their interest. But it's also important to note that not only should we be committed to reform, we should be cognizant that reform slowly and with great effort is happening. And it's showing some effect. And the images that cause us the most despair are in a way doing their job. They're spurring us to act. So we don't have to see those images. And so our fellow citizens don't have to be subject to the abuse contained in those images for decades to come. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, gperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.